What Comes After Farce by Hal Foster Preface Marx made the notion sound already like a cliché when he first presented it in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, 1852. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add, the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. The tragedy was the seizing of dictatorial power by Napoleon in 1799, and the farce was the repeating of this act by his nephew Napoleon III in 1851. How could the Bonaparte clan get away with the same power grab twice? Although it seemed that nothing was learned in the repetition, this was not the case, according to Marx, for it did clarify an essential point, that the bourgeoisie was only too ready to ditch its democratic values, liberté, égalité, fraternité, if doing so meant that it could retain its economic domination. Alarmed by the 1848 revolution, the ruling class acceded to another emperor, a copy more ridiculous than the original. In our time, Donald Trump has performed a similar clarification. Apparently, many American plutocrats regard the trashing of constitutional laws, the scapegoating of immigrants, and the mobilizing of white supremacists as a small price to pay for even more capital concentration through financial deregulation, tax cuts, and corrupt deal-making. And, like the lumpen proletariat in France then, millions in the United States today have succumbed to the fascist virus, which promises to protect them from such exploitation, even as it delivers them all the more completely to it. If farce follows tragedy, what follows farce? Along with a modicum of clarity has come a lot of bullshit. As the philosopher Harry Frankfurt argued in his classic essay on the subject, the liar lies knowingly and so maintains a relation to truth, whereas the bullshitter cares nothing about veracity and so is all the more corrosive of it. A post-truth politics is a massive problem, of course, but so too is a post-shame one. Locally, where does this double predicament leave artists and critics on the left? Among other effects, it complicates critical methods that aim at exposure. How to demystify a hegemonic order that dismisses its own contradictions? How to belittle a political elite that cannot be embarrassed or to mock party leaders who thrive on the absurd? How to out-dada a president whose prototype seems to be the child monster Per Ubu of Alfred Jerry? And in any event, why add outrage to a media economy that thrives on the same? 
I take up these questions and many others in the short texts gathered here, drafted over the last 15 years, a period punctuated by the financial crisis of 2008 and the perpetual catastrophe that is Trump. These bulletins comment on shifts in art, criticism, and fiction in the face of the current regime of war, terror, and surveillance, as well as of extreme inequality, climate disaster, and media disruption. In an attempt to gauge this situation, I consider a range of practices, variously, as symptomatic expressions, critical probes, and alternative proposals. The first section focuses on the cultural political politics of emergency since 9-11, including the use and abuse of trauma, paranoia, and kitsch. The second part reviews the neoliberal makeover of art institutions during the same period, as both the market and the museum expanded enormously and artists responded, critically and otherwise, to these spectacular changes. Finally, a third group surveys transformations in media as reflected in recent art, film, and fiction. Among the phenomena explored here are machine vision, signs produced by machines for other machines without a human interface, operational images, images that do not represent the world so much as intervene in it, and the algorithmic scripting of information that is so pervasive in our everyday lives. If all this sounds dire, it is. In many respects, we look out on a world that has moved, not only politically, but also technologically, beyond our control. And this extreme situation has prompted extreme formulations by artists and critics alike. Thus, for example, Trevor Paglin sees art as a safe house in the invisible digital sphere, while Claire Fontaine imagines it as a human strike against all scripted identities. Even as Hino Sterl declares that since subjectivity is colonized by capitalism, we might as well identify with objects. In this harsh light, it is sometimes difficult to distinguish between the critical and the dystopian. Sometimes, too, the ambient nihilism of the neoliberal order seems redoubled as much as challenged. Nevertheless, each of my three sections concludes with practices that offer a utopian glimmer of fiction. The pattern of tragedy followed by farce is still a logic of sorts. History retains a narrative, even if it is a pathetic one. Yet perhaps this coherence was an illusion, and again, what could come after farce anyway? Nothing necessarily. Palliatives like the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, or we must strive for a more perfect union of the nation. Hardly soothe anyone anymore. Nothing is guaranteed. Everything is a struggle. Again, locally, it is no longer clear whether art can depend on its own past, and its present seems institutionally tenuous too.
At such a time, one might be forgiven for clutching at etymological straws. Originally a farce, which derives from the French farcir, to stuff, was a comic interlude in a religious play. A farce might be understood then as an in-between moment, maybe along the lines of the morbid interregnum between old and new political orders articulated by Antonio Gramsci circa 1930. At the very least, an interlude does suggest that another time will arrive. This is where my other term, debacle, comes into play. It too derives from the French for downfall, collapse, disaster. But its root is debâcle, to free, from the Middle French debâcle, to unbar. And its literal meaning is the breaking up of ice on a river, as in a flood in spring. A debacle is thus a sudden release of force, usually for the bad, but possibly for the good. Debacle might even point to a dialectic of breaking and making otherwise, with regard to conventions, institutions, and laws alike. Such is the opportunity in the current period of political upheaval to transform disruptive emergency into structural change or at least to pressure the cracks in the social order where power can be resisted and reworked. This is not necessarily wishful thinking. For too long, it is said, the left has focused For too long, it is said, the left has focused on cultural identity and ceded political control to the right. Yet the cultural realm, museums, universities, and the like, is where many of us can exert what little leverage we do possess. And lately, we have seen a partial recharging of these institutions, largely as a result of three movements. An increased awareness, thanks to Occupy Wall Street, of the plutocratic order that underwrites most large organizations, a renewed agitation, thanks to Black Lives Matter, regarding the colonialist basis of many great museums, not to mention the racialist hierarchy of almost all staffs, and a reanimated critique, thanks to the Me Too phenomenon, of persistent structures of sexism and patriarchy. There is much to debate in terms of tactics and effects, yet certainly one result of these developments is an unexpected return of the museum and the university as possible sites of a reclaimed public sphere, where, at least in principle, critiques can be voiced and alternatives proposed. In any case, they have emerged as pressure points for activist artists and critics, who have worked to explore the tensions between the public commitments of such institutions and the private interests that direct them. Chapter 1. Terror and Transgression Traumatic Trace No human trace was left of more than the 40% 
of nearly 3,000 victims of the World Trade Center attacks of September 11, 2001. Most of the material in the two towers was pulverized, and much of the other debris, 1.8 million tons in all, consisted of columns and beams. Several of these structures, broken and bent, were kept as graphic evidence of the sheer force of the double strike. Eventually, some 1,200 objects were chosen as tokens of the catastrophe. Initially warehoused at a hangar at JFK Airport, these things were later dispersed to memorials around the U.S., foremost among them the National September 11th Memorial and Museum at Ground Zero, which opened on the 10th anniversary of the attacks. The Spanish artist Francesc Torres, a longtime resident of New York, was two blocks from the North Tower when the first jet struck, and he witnessed the fall of both buildings from the rooftop of his studio ten blocks away. Commissioned by the September 11th Museum, Torres photographed the objects in the 80,000-square-foot interior of the JFK hangar every day in April 2009 and gathered his images in Memory Remains, 9-11 Artifacts at Hangar 17, 2011. It is difficult, as one looks at the photos, not to consider these tokens in terms of iconic value. Especially prized in this respect is the last column, a 37-foot piece of an interior support from the South Tower, so named because it was the final thing to be removed from the site. Last object out, it was the first one in the September 11th Museum, which was constructed around the column due to its size. Covered with pictures of victims, badges, and tags from fire and police departments, and notes and mementos from loved ones, the column lies flat, supported on steel beams of its own, like an industrial version of the True Cross. Placed in the same semi-sacral register are also beams with little crosses and stars cut out by metal workers for families and friends of the deceased. Most evocative of the fallen buildings are the fragments of the 360-foot antenna that once stood atop the North Tower, and most telling of the courageous response are the battered vehicles of the aid professionals who rushed to the scene. Torres offers close-ups of torched insignia on trucks and cars, of rescuers turned victims, a blistered FDNYC here, a melted ambulance there. At the same time, he includes photos of banal things that convey the random effects of the attacks, such as clothes and tchotchkes from the underground mall that were somehow preserved. As the journalist Jerry Adler writes in Memory Remains, the objects with the best odds of survival were those small enough to have lodged safely in a crevice. Keys, coins, and rings. Such are the things that shall inherit the earth. In the introduction to his book, Torres notes the blurred line between document and art in both the objects and the photographs. First, there are fragments from actual artworks, such as the steel sculpture by Alexander Calder, once sighted on World Trade Center Plaza, laid out on white slabs, bent propeller, 1970, exists in a limbo between ruin and art.
Then, too, some of the trashed cars and smashed commodities recall the work of John Chamberlain and Armand, who once aimed to aestheticize such debris. And finally, there is the ambiguous display in the hangar. The pictures reveal an arrangement of things that is no longer forensic, but not yet museological. And the entire layout might be mistaken for a vast art installation. Along with the aestheticization of the remains, there are other troublesome issues to consider. Early on, the skin of the last column, scorched and rusted, began to flake, and conservatives rushed, conservators rushed to reattach the chips. Is that the right response to a thing whose value lies largely in its indexing of time? Everything down to the smallest residue was of the utmost importance, Torres writes. One understands what he means, and yet appreciates the care in his approach. Can this be true? Many objects in the photographs seem both significant and meaningless, at once erratic and empty. Here, both the project of the book and the mission of the museum becomes tricky. They're not sculptures. You don't want them to be beautiful, Chris Ward, the executive director of the Port Authority at the time, comments of the remains. They are sacred. This touches on the most ambiguous opposition of all, not art versus document, but artifact versus relic. Is there a line between human tragedy and oppressive sublimity? If there is, the events of 9-11 were soon pushed over it, and that is where they have remained ever since. For Americans, the World Trade Center became the World Trauma Center, and that trauma was soon converted into support for the war on terror. For what victims, the lex talionis of terror runs, do not have the right to be perpetrators? Thus was the violence of the attacks returned with interest. Wounded, the American Empire aimed not only to build the towers higher than before, but also to hunt the terrorists down and smoke them out. And in keeping with the rhetoric that Al Qaeda used its own advantage, used to its own advantage, it marched into battle as the Crusades came again. In this light, the talk of relics and icons, not to mention the appearance of crosses and stars, was never benign. Here, the experience of the sublime and the traumatic was all but captured by the category of the sacred. Early on, Ground Zero was described as hallowed ground, and to this day, 9-11 is often treated as a catastrophe that can be, cannot be assimilated. This framing tends to turn a historical event into a theological one, a misprision that conforms not only with the turn to the reactionary thought of Carl Schmitt in recent policymaking and political theory alike, what the sovereign makes as in law he can unmake as in a state of emergency, but also with the theocratic bent of so many political leaders the exception in jurisprudence, Schmidt wrote, is analogous to the miracle in theology. 
Can the remains of 9-11 be both relics and artifacts, iconic and evidentiary? Can the National September 11 Memorial and Museum both rehearse the trauma of the day and assist in its comprehension? Might a memorial and museum be at cross-purposes in this respect? Ten years after 9-11, the Museum of Modern Art at PS1 opened a show titled simply September 11th. Its gambit also appeared simple, not to display any images of the attacks or any works made in response to them. Instead, curator Peter Ely explained, This exhibition considers the ways in which 9-11 has altered how we see and experience the world in its wake. For Ely, the attacks were an intervention in spectacle that was a spectacle in its own right. 9-11 was made to be used. Why would I want to repeat such transgression? With an epigraph drawn from the philosophical investigations of Wittgenstein, a picture held us captive. His show sought to loosen us a little from this capture, to despectacularize 9-11 somewhat. To this end, Ely exhibited only art, created independently of the attacks, that transcends the specificities of its epoch, form, or content to uncannily address the present. That art can resonate across time and place is a familiar notion, but usually it concerns the retroactive effect of present practices on past ones, as in accounts of literary revision from T.S. Eliot to Harold Bloom. Here, the question was pitched differently. Might historical works foreshadow contemporary events and be changed by this unexpected connection? Thus, Ely suggested that, after 9-11, a 1956 photo by Diane Arbus of a newspaper blown across an empty Manhattan intersection is seen in a different light one even darker than the dim illumination in the desolate original. Or that a 1982 smashed car sculpture by John Chamberlain is viewed through the cracked lens of the crushed rescue vehicles at the World Trade Center. Or that a 1968 rap piece by Cristo, a long slab bound in red tarp by rope, is altered in its effect that where there was once enigma, there is now threat. The package is bomb, or loss, the bundle as bodily remains. His strongest claim about this recharging of artworks was made in relation to unidentified woman, Hotel Corona de Aragon, Madrid, 1980, by Sarah Charlesworth. A murky print of a news photo of a female suicide plunging to her death her dress fluttering up to reveal her bare legs and backside. This image, which evokes prior ones by Andy Warhol, no longer belongs to itself, Ely asserted, read through our representations of its desperate jumpers from the Twin Towers, it is subsumed by 9-11. The proposition that traumatic events might alter artworks after the fact is a complex one, most often, such resonance is a calculated effect that artists elicit from the image repertoire of a pictorial tradition. 
Thus, for instance, did Edouard Manet draw on the iconic power of the dead Christ for his fallen Toreador of 1864, as did Gerhard Richter for his lifeless terrorist of 1988. Such is one sense of the definition that Baudelaire once offered for painting as the mnemotechni of the beautiful. However, as September 11 implied, our inclination today is more in keeping with A.B. Warburg, for whom art was the mnemotechni of the traumatic. For this German art historian, ancient art lived on through pathos formal, or pictorial formulae of emotional turmoil that are inscribed to us to the extent that we are inculcated in the classical tradition. Key here is that both Baudelaire and Warburg understood such memory techniques as internal to art, whereas September 11 proposed that this resonance is a worldly effect and that it is most likely to operate in relation to media events of a catastrophic nature, from the Kennedy assassinations, say, to the World Trade Center attacks, and beyond. Anachronism is typically regarded as a great vice in art history, the smooth operation of which gets jammed if dates are confused. September 11 made anachronism a virtue, and in this respect, it was in keeping with recent provocations like anachronic renaissance by Alexander Nagel and Christopher Wood, who resist the default demand that we understand the significance of art strictly in terms of its histor historicity. That is, in terms of the particular circumstances of its initial making. Again, Ely was concerned with work that transcends the specificities of its epoch, form, or content to uncannily address the present. Yet how exactly are we to understand this anachronic address to the viewer? It is not quite transcendental. Some of the specificities of the art prepare the recharging that is precisely at issue. Nor is it truly uncanny, strictly speaking. The uncanny involves the return of a familiar image, person, or event made strange by repression. And this is not the case here either. More than anything else, the works in September 11 were made to appear portentous. They were treated as floating signifiers turned into piercing ones by accidental association with 9-11. In the end, the subject of September 11 was our own subjectivity, as Ely all but admitted. What we read into images is itself a thematic undercurrent of the exhibition at large. The prevalent mode of art viewing today is an effective one. If Kant resumed the ancient question, is the work beautiful? And Duchamp formulated the avant-garde query, is the work art at all? Our primary criterion seems to be, does this image or object move me? Where we once spoke of the quality of a work, as judged by comparison with great art of the past, and then about its interest and its criticality 
both of which were measured by relevance to contemporary aesthetic and or political debates. We now look for pathos, which cannot be tested objectively or even discussed much. A work that is a hit for me might be a miss for you. Ely believed that the terrorists had spectac spectacularly politicized our visual sphere. This was so, yet, is it the best response to aestheticize it traumatically in return?